my mother used to have a uh, plaque hanging over her desk in her bedroom. It was a needlepoint thing, uh, green lettering on a white background with little roses around the outside. And the plaque read, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. There's something to be said for uh, having plaques around the house because I've never forgotten that one. Uh, it's a true sentiment, certainly one that's expressed in Scripture. But uh, I've come to believe that that's not where the Christian life begins. It is true that only what's done for Christ will last. But uh, the emphasis in Scripture that's made over and over again is this. It's not what we do for Christ that matters. It's what Christ has done for us and what he's doing through us. And that's always where Scripture begins. It all depends on him. Now, there are a number of passages that teach this truth, but uh, one states it very clearly. It's Second Samuel 7. I'd like to encourage you to turn with me there. Second Samuel 7. For those of you who may be here for the first time, I'd like to play catch-up for just a minute because uh, you'll need to understand something in the background of this passage. We've been over the past months talking about God's plan to save the human race. It began back in Genesis 3.15 with the uh, promise to Adam and Eve that a man would someday come who would crush the head of the serpent, a promise that was restated to uh, Noah in Genesis 9 and 10. Noah was told that one of his sons, Shem, would bear the seed. In other words, one-third uh, of the human race, the Semitic line, would uh, contain the seed and bear it on to the next generation. And much later in Genesis 12, we're told that that promise was given to Abraham. We know that the man would come from, from one of his descendants or would be one of his descendants. The promise was reaffirmed to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to one of his 12 sons, Judah. So that uh, by the time the nation of Israel goes down into Egypt for this period of captivity in, in Egypt, we know that the man will be a Jew who will come from the tribe of Judah. And not only will he come from the tribe of Judah, but he'll be a kingly figure, a regal figure. Judah was told that the scepter would never depart from that tribe until Shiloh comes. Scepter is a symbol of rule. And Shiloh, uh, is best we're able to tell, means uh, the man of peace, who will the king, who will come and, and rule, and set things right. And through those long, hard years in Egypt, Israel waited for that king who would deliver them. Then, as you know, the uh, book of Exodus records the exodus from Egypt and the journey down to Mount Sinai where they received the law. And as I've said over and over again, the law was not uh, given to supersede or replace the promise. As Paul puts it, it was added alongside of the promise. The promise was still good. The law was simply uh, Israel's way of responding to the grace of God, but the, but the real issue was the goodness of God in, in fulfilling his promise. One of these days a man would come who was going to set everything right, make it like it ought to be. Then they traveled from Sinai up to the plains of Moab and the book of Joshua records the conquest of the land. So now there is a people, a nation, bound together by their charter, the law, in the land that was promised to Abraham. But still, there's, there's no king. And the book of Judges makes the point that that's why everything was so bad during the period of time after the, the conquest. The generation that, 
that followed, the generation that conquered the land, fell into apostasy and they intermarried with the Canaanites. And instead of being a witness to the world, they became just like the rest of the world. And the explanation given is that there was no king. There was no one who could set things right, no one to be a standard of righteousness, no one to rally the people and and give them some direction in their life, no one to remind them of the promise. So the whole nation fell into apostasy. First Samuel is the story of the first step in the wrong direction. They wanted a king, they knew they needed a king, and so they requested a king of Samuel. Give us a king, they said, like all the other nations. Now, there's nothing wrong with their request. They needed a king. What was wrong was that they wanted a king like all the other nations. And so God gave them a king like that. Saul, who was a thoroughly secular man who had no interest whatever in the promise, who could care less about Israel fulfilling her historic destiny, he was out for himself. And as you know, he went stark, raving mad. He's a classic example of Lord Acton's principle that Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then we come to David. First Samuel is the story of Saul. Second Samuel is the story of David. And David is described as a man after God's own heart. Now, David wasn't perfect. He had a bad temper. And he was a man of fierce passions. And he usually, his uh, tongue got him into a lot of trouble. But he was a man who was always quick to repent when his sin was pointed out to him, and he was a man who hungered after God with all of his heart. And one of the things that shows that attitude is, was his attitude toward the ark. He wanted to get the ark. We're told in one of his psalms that uh, when he was a little boy in Bethlehem, he longed to, to get the ark. It was down in a, in a wood near Kiriath-Jerim. It, it had been captured by the Philistines and taken away, and it was left in a, in a forest to rot away because all during Saul's time, no one cared about the ark. But David did because it symbolized the rule of God in the nation. And as soon as he uh, was anointed king and then appointed to that office and had captured, recaptured the city of Jerusalem from the Canaanites, the first thing he did was to go down and get that little box and bring it up to Jerusalem as a sign of, of the of the worship, the centrality of God in the nation. And it's at that point that we pick up the story in, in 2 Samuel 7. Now, chapter 7 is displaced chronologically in the story. It really comes after chapter 10, but it's, it's placed here in chapter 7 because immediately before is the story of the ark. And the point of the author is that it was David's attitude toward the ark that indicated his heart, and it's because of his heart that this promise was given in, in chapter 7. It came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. David had a house built for him by the Phoenicians, built out of cypress, cedars, beautiful home in which he and his family could live, but, but the ark was still out in the open under the tent. And so David wants to build a house for the ark. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. With you. you know, the prophet gives his opinion, but he was wrong. Here's one instance where a prophet uh, missed, because he wasn't speaking from Revelation. He was simply giving his opinion. But that night, God corrected him. It came about on the same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? 
For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I have commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Two things to note in this paragraph. One is the simplicity of David. He was a simple man. He was a humble shepherd. Became a great man. God made him, gave him a great name, but uh, at the outset he was just a very simple, humble man. He used to ride around Jerusalem on a donkey. You can imagine that. A king on a little awkward, flop-eared, sad-faced donkey riding around the streets of Jerusalem with his feet dragging the ground. I suppose if he were living today, he'd drive a Volkswagen bus or a pickup truck, an old battered, beat-up pickup. Kings in those days rode in chariots drawn by stallions, but not, not David. He rode on a little donkey, an indication of his heart. God said he has a, he has a servant's heart. He's the servant of, of the Lord. That's, a, that, that's the highest accolade that, that can be offered to anyone in Scripture. It's the greatest thing you can say about anyone. He's a servant. He's a servant's heart. And that's what's said of David. Just a simple man. Great heart for God. The other thing I notice is, if I can put it this way, the simplicity of God. You say, you want to build a house for me? I've never lived in a house. I've lived in a tent, symbolically, dwelt in a tent. Why would you want to build me a house? Have I ever asked you to build me something like the Parthenon? Or a great ziggurat on which to worship me? Have I ever asked for that? God's content to live in a tent, which is real comfort for me when I think of what he has to dwell in these days, me and us, this body, our saggy, baggy tents. You see, God desires that sort of thing, simply a, a place that's available, a body that's available to him. That's all he wants. Not impressed by our grandeur and splendor, even by our piety. He says, I've, I've never desired a, a grand place in which to dwell. Just a tent. That's adequate. The oracle goes on in verse 8, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, there it is again, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people. Israel, he went from shepherding sheep to shepherding people. Came from the smallest clan. The smallest family was the youngest in his clan. God called him out of the, the fields to shepherd his people. And I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. The chapters that follow chapter 7 describe those victories. And then the verb tense changes. This is what God will do. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Sounds very much like the promise to Abraham. Everyone knows of David today. His promise has been adequately fulfilled. It's been memorialized in song, verse, sculpture. And I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, guarantee their right to live in the land, their, their their, their possession of the land, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. That's the punchline. David, you want to build a house for me? I don't want you to build a house for me. I want to do something for you. I want to build your house. And all the way through, the emphasis is on what God is going to do for David. I'll do this. I have done this in the past. This is what I'll do for you in the future. He just wants to give. As James puts it, 
He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. It all depends upon him. He delights to give. I have a friend uh, that I grew up with who tells me that he had an uncle that he used to go visit from time to time. And every time he left his uncle's house to go home, he would check the pockets of his overalls and he would find something that his uncle had slipped into his pocket, a little pocket knife or a silver dollar or something like that. He never went away from his uncle's house without finding some little surprise in his pocket. And that's the kind of God we have. He's like that. He loves to surprise us with nice things, little serendipities, little happy surprises that he slips into our spiritual pockets from time to time. You ever check your pocket and see what's there? Life is hard, you know. It really is. Life is tough. I don't know of any of us who are not undergoing some aspect of suffering, but in the midst of all of that, the Lord passes on some happy little surprise to us that lets us know that it really doesn't depend upon us at all, that he's at work in us, both to will and and to do of his good pleasure. Carol and I got a letter last week uh, from a friend of ours in Dallas, Texas, that we haven't heard from in some time. And Carolyn opened the letter and burst into tears, passed it on to me, and I began to read it, wondering what sort of bad news could possibly be in this letter. And uh, it's from a woman uh, who lives in Texas whose brother was my best friend all through high school and college. We were involved in Young Life Club together and in various uh, ministries, Bible studies and those sorts of things, and Jack went off to medical school and just tossed the whole thing and turned his back on the Lord, left his pregnant wife and two children and went off to live with another woman and, and just rejected it all. Absolutely hard. Wouldn't talk to me. Got up uh, uh, from a restaurant once when I was pleading with him to come back and just stormed out, and for years I had no contact with Jack at all. His parents couldn't reach him. No one could reach him. Uh, for years, he was a psychiatrist at Yale working with, with students and uh, had become a, an atheist, basically. Then went into private practice in, in Boston. And in this letter, Mary told us that uh, about a month ago, uh, a young lady walked into his office to get help with her marriage, a charismatic Catholic lady. And at the close of their first session, apparently she asked Jack to pray with her not knowing anything about him. And to make a long story short, Jack and Sandy, now his second wife, and this couple went out to dinner together, and in the course of their discussion, Jack blurted out something about the lamb, that he knew about the lamb that had been sacrificed in the uh, in the tabernacle, and this lady said, where did you, how did you get all this information? And she said, when, he said, when I was a child. And apparently he gave his heart to the Lord that day, or back to the Lord. And Mary said that uh, he now has a weekly Bible study in his reception room with his patients. And I say that's a happy surprise. Uh, all sorts of people had pled with Jack, and, and I think we probably put a great deal of pressure on him during those years. That's been 25 years. And some little charismatic Catholic lady who came to him for help, leads him back to Christ. And that's the kind of Lord we have. You know, we get fretful, and we pace the floor and wring our hands and bite our fingernails and pull our hair because God isn't working and we think we have to push, manipulate, and twist, and do all sorts of things to make 
things happen. But really what the Lord wants to do is his work in his own time and in his own way. And that's what he says to David. You want to build me a house? (laughs) What sort of house could you build for me? What I'd like to do is build a house for you. Now, obviously, the house he's talking about is not a house of sticks and stones and bricks and mortar, but rather it's a dynasty, as we read in the verses that follow. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant or a seed after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is probably a reference to Solomon who did build the house, who was his descendant, immediate descendant. But in verse 13, we're told the throne of his kingdom would be established forever. Ah, there's something new. And he says in verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loyalty, the word loving kindness here means loyalty to his oath, to his covenant shall not depart from him. I promise that he will have an eternal throne. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, what he promises is an eternal seed for David. In the rest of the uh, historical books of the Bible, books of First and Second Kings and Chronicles describe for us the the development of that promise through the line of David, the kings that proceeded from him, Solomon and Rehoboam, Abijah, Jehoshaphat, and so forth, on through the Old Old Testament. And uh, there were some good ones there, and there were some bad ones. And when they were wicked, they were, as God promised, punished with a rod of iron. Iron, he took them out to the woodshed and laid it to them. Sometimes they were exiled. Sometimes the whole nation went into exile. But there was always a descendant of David to sit on the throne. Always. Even when the nation went into captivity, there was one, at least one son who was living, who was the guarantee that God meant what he said. Any Israelite could point to the person on the throne or the person who ought to be on the throne if they were subject to some other nation and say, that's the down payment, that's the earnest, that's the guarantee that God means what he says. There will always be a son of David who can sit on the throne. And they refer to these sons as messiahs. The, our word messiah comes from the Hebrew word shiach, which means an anointed one. They were all anointed ones. But they knew that there was someone coming downstream who would be the messiah, the anointed one, the man promised back in Genesis 3.15. Sometimes the line would pinch out until there was only one descendant left, but... But the promise was good. At one point in Israel's history, there was a woman by the name of Athaliah, who was the daughter of Jezebel, the wicked witch of the north, the uh, wife of Ahab. And Athaliah usurped the throne of, of the southern kingdom, and she set out to exterminate all the line of David, all the sons of David she could find. She killed all but one, little Joash. And the priests uh, hid him away in the temple and thus preserved the line. But there was always at least one. And when Athaliah was deposed, Joash became the king. There he was. That's a guarantee. And any Jew could point to that man on the throne and say, that's the earnest. That's the guarantee that one of these days a man is coming who will set things right. Some of you may remember back in 1956 when uh, Princess uh, Grace 
was about to bear a child and the whole world waited breathlessly for that event. I don't remember all the details, but as I recall, Prince Rainier was the last of the line of Garibaldi. And if he had no male heirs, then Monaco would uh, would revert back to France. The, the little nation would come to an end. And the whole world waited. Would Princess Grace have a, a boy or not? And she did, of course. And the line of Garibaldi carried on. And the little nation continues to endure to this day. And that's exactly what happened time and time again in Israel's history. David has promised that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. And the man, the present king, the reigning king during any time, or the man who had the right to reign, was the guarantee that there was a king coming who would rule eternally. And David responds to that in verse 18 with sheer delight. And David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God. For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the teaching about the man. My New American Standard says this is the custom of man, but, but the Hebrew actually says this is the Torah, the law, the teaching. The word Torah means the teaching or instruction. This is instruction about the man. What man? The man promised in Genesis 3.15. David just... Uh, begins to jump up and down with, with glee, and he says, I'm, I'm in that line. I'm one of those in the, in the line promised back in the beginning. Promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I'm one of them. And one of these days, one of my seed will sit on the throne. Now, David knew it was not he. In Psalm 110, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I make your enemy's a footstool for your feet. In other words, he refers to his son, some son who would uh, come later, as my Lord. That's unheard of in an Eastern culture where they worship ancestors. You don't refer to your son as Lord. That's a title of respect. It would work the other way. Your son would refer to you as Lord. But David knew that there was a greater son coming who would be the man who would be the savior of the world. Now, as I say, from time to time that was lost. But there was always someone who is the guarantee. And Israel witnessed to the nations by pointing to the one. Someone is coming. And as you follow through the story, prophets continued to remind them of the coming of the son of David until you come to the time of Jesus. And if you'll turn with me to Matthew 1. Matthew begins his book in this way, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah, and to Judah Perez, and to Perez Hezron, and Ram, and Abinadab, Aminadab, and Nakshon, and Boaz, and Jesse, and David. And then Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, down to verse 11, Jeconiah, who was the king who was deported along with the rest of, of the southern kingdom to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shaltiel, and to Shaltiel Zerubbabel, and to Zerubbabel was born Hephiad and a bunch of other unpronounceable names, people that we 
hardly know anything about because they lived during the period of the exile and they did not reign, but they were the current guarantee, the earnest, that the son of David was coming. In verse 15, to Eliad was born Eliezer, and to Eliezer, Mathan, and to Mathan, Jacob. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And that's as far as the line ever went. There wasn't any need for it to go any further because he was the eternal son of David who would sit on the throne forever. And the resurrection guaranteed it. He's the living king of Israel. In 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple and all of the temple records were lost. There was simply no way to recover any of the genealogies, but there wasn't any need to recover them. They didn't need to know who the son of David was because he had already come. And he was there to reign eternally. All through Israel's history, see, they kept pointing to that one who was coming. And now we, as the Israel of God, point back to his coming. We have the same task that they have, the same destiny, and that is to point to the seed who came to save. That's our destiny. That's what we're here for. Can't think of any other reason for our existence. Why doesn't the Lord take us back? Take us to be with him. Certainly we could glorify him in heaven. We could grow in heaven. We're here to give witness to this great plan of salvation that began way, way back when man first fell. Give witness to the promise. Now when I think about that seriously, it changes uh, my whole attitude toward all sorts of things. For one, it changes my attitude toward other Christians. We need to... We need to join with them and walk with them side by side in making proclamation of this promise. Why in the world do we fight among ourselves? Sometimes I think we're like the dwarves in uh, C.S. Lewis's last battle. We can't decide who the enemy is. Sometimes we fight the Calormines, sometimes we fight the children of God. Why do we divide up over, over minutia when we have this great earth-shaking worldwide task of making proclamation that the king has come? What difference do these differences make, really? I think sometimes it's like passing the Pepsi challenge. Once you determine the difference, what difference can it possibly make? Some people pray with their hands up. Some people pray with their hands down. Some people pray with their hands out. What difference does it make? Some people pour and, or dip or dunk or sprinkle or what, what difference does it make? Or what difference does it make whether we are pre-tribulational or mid-tribulational or post-tribulational in our view of the rapture? What possible difference can it make when Christians throughout the last 2,000 years, godly Christians, students of scripture, have disagreed on this subject? All I, all I can say for sure is that Jesus is coming back and that he's not through with Israel yet. And that's really all I can say dogmatically. Beyond that point, I have certain beliefs, but they're not, I can't hold them dogmatically because I can't be sure. And there are other Christians who have other positions that they can document from Scripture. Why should we fight among ourselves, for goodness sake? We need to be joining side by side, making proclamation. To the world, because we're part of this historic plan that God worked out throughout the history of Israel and is now working out in the history of the church. We today are the people of God, a light to the Gentiles. This also changes the way I think we look at non-Christians. What, 
What do we think about the non-Christian world? Have we withdrawn from it because they're not like us? Because they have different lifestyles? They do some of the things we don't do and they don't do some of the things we do? Now, far removed from Jesus' attitude, who loved the unbelieving world, who was known as the friend of sinners. It's a good question to ask ourselves from time to time. How many non-Christians do we know that we genuinely consider as friends? And to what extent are we cultivating friendships with the non-Christian world? In our office, in our shop, down here at the courthouse, or the tennis club, or wherever you, you hang out. Are we making friends with them? Do we see them as lost, as helpless, without the plan? Or are they to be shunned and rejected because they're not like us? David McKenna, who's the president of uh, the school where Brian, our second son, is going to college, Seattle Pacific University, told a story recently about a church he attended and he was sitting Toward the back, and a young lady walked into the service, dressed in a sort of counterculture uh, manner, and uh, sat on the front row, right under the pastor's nose. Church wasn't near full. There are other places she could sit, but she walked right down. The service had already started. She walked right down the aisle, and she sat right in the front row. And it happened to be a communion service, and uh, when the elements were passed, and the pastor picked up the uh, cup in order to pray, the woman stood to her feet and held up the cup in a toast. And people were scandalized. And after the service was over, they all turned around and walked out and left this young woman sitting on the front row. And Dr. McKenna went made his way down to her and sat down beside her and, and discovered that she was a young woman who was desperately looking for, for truth and Light and had come to this church thinking that perhaps she would find it there, had heard the gospel as it was preached, and her only response, the only response that she knew how to make in that situation was to offer a toast to the Lord Jesus. That's all she could do. Now, how do we respond to people like that? Do we understand? Are we sympathetic toward them? Do we love them? Are we offended by their the differences in their tastes and lifestyle and approaches? Or are we reaching out to them in love as, as the Lord Jesus did? Now, we have ahead of us a, a very practical way to work all of this out. The Billy Graham Crusade is coming up. And it gives us a, a grand opportunity to take our place in the, in the stream of redemptive history and, and make proclamation to people that are, that are in need of Christ. Great opportunity. I've been through two crusades one in Texas and one in, in California, and in both cases I've seen the enormous impact that the crusade sustains on a city, and certainly a city the size of Boise is going to be shaken by the crusade, but not by Dr. Graham alone. It will be the Christians who get involved in the lives of their non-Christian friends and take seriously the responsibility to get them to a place where they can, can hear the gospel and then follow through. Now, let me suggest three things. Number one, Let's start making friends with non-Christians. If we don't have any non-Christian friends, let's, let's make them. Just make the effort. If we don't do that, what may happen is that the week before the crusade begins, we'll go across the street to invite our neighbor, and they'll say, no, thank you. And that will simply convince us of what we believed all along, that they're not interested. But that's not it at all. We can't 
just drop in out of outer space. We have to build relationships. Get to know the people on your block, in your neighborhood. Start having them over for dinner. Start doing things with them. Play golf with them or racquetball or whatever whatever you do. Knit together. And and start building relationships with with non-Christians. And then start praying for them. Prayer is, uh, at least in my mind, is the like the big guns that soften up the opposition. That's that's uh, that that prepares the heart so that God can assault the citadel of the will. Start praying for them. You're amazed what it'll do for your relationship with them. And seek opportunities to share the gospel between now and then, because it really doesn't depend upon Dr. Graham. It's not his task to win the world; it's ours. But when the crusade comes, invite your friend. But then that's not the end of it. That's still your friend. Continue to follow through. Even if they don't make a commitment at the, at the crusade, continue to follow through. It's the easiest thing in the world to say on the way back to your house, what did you think of what Dr. Graham had to say? Or, as you know, the statesman will be publishing articles about the crusade and there will be editorials and it's just so easy to talk about Christ in an environment where everybody is talking about it, either for him or against him. This is a climate that that we can capitalize upon. I may also suggest that you get into the Christian life and witness classes. There's a brochure in the bulletin. Take a look at it and get involved. There'll be three classes offered uh, during the evenings, and they're well worth the time. Well worth the time. I went to one back in 1954 when I was still in college, and that's what turned me around and got me started walking with, with the Lord. I was a Christian prior to that, but really had no real interest in spiritual things. And you can learn how to share your faith in a very simple and effective way. All I'm saying is let's don't let this God-given opportunity get past us. I am so excited that Dr. Graham is coming to Boise. It amazed me that he would come, as busy as he is. And at such short notice, but he's coming. Let's start preparing for it in all the, all the ways that are, that are possible. Let's get involved. Knowing that God is at work in us, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for this reminder again of your goodness to us, for the great plan of salvation that, that you worked out in history. You did all by yourself without any help from us. And we thank you that it's there available to us today believe, to act upon. And we would like to be used, Father, as, as instruments to take that message to others who, who need it, who want to hear it, who are waiting for it. Help us to be faithful, deliver us from our, our pride and our fear and all the things that inhibit us and our concern lest people think we're strange and, and different. Help us to be honest and up front about our faith, real, genuine. Help us to be loving and sensitive. Deliver us from being brash, harsh, judgmental. Teach us how to speak the truth in love and uh, to know how to speak a word in season to those that are weary. We're thankful again that it, it does depend upon you. We can rely upon your strength to make these things happen. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.